Well, I guess we should probably get going. It's just getting a little late. All right, yeah. Yeah, it is. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. It's all good. I've not been sleeping well, and then I sleep too much when I do finally get to sleep, so. All right. All righty. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Nerdscape, a semi-weekly podcast where two siblings with not nearly enough time on their hands get together and talk about nerdy stuff. I am Ralma. And I am Fen. And this week, we're, uh, we've decided to do a, uh, another generalized discussion on a franchise that has been very, very near and dear to us for a long, long time. Almost as long as Star Wars, I would say. Almost. There's about a four-year gap. About a four-year gap, but there wasn't really a whole lot in our lives in between, I think. This is true. It was no, pretty much no. just Star Wars up until that point. Yeah. Um, and I, I, Oddly enough, I think it's one that uh, we may have only mentioned once now. I think that's a fair assumption to make. I think we only brought it up during the uh, Bad Dads episode. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we're we're talking about the uh, Lord of the Rings today, and uh, just Middle Earth in general. Yeah. I, I imagine. Yeah, no, no, no. When I say Lord of the Rings, I never mean like just the trilogy. Right, of course. That's because that's boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not the not the trilogy, but like restraining restraining yourself, yourself to the trilogy is boring. Because there's so much. There's so much. Well, and the Hobbit actually came out first. Yes. Yeah. All of his other works were written as supplementary or um, like historical documents pertaining to the same world. So, mm -hmm. like, it's all connected. Right. Yeah. Um, I was 13, I think, and you were 12. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Let me, let me double check that mm -hmm. because I can actually nail down the exact year we watched it. Oh, that's a, that's a rare occurrence. Um, let me double check, because, yeah, it would have been fall of 2002, I'm pretty sure. When did the Two Towers come out? 2002. Yeah. Because, um... Because we did not see that one in theaters. No. But we did see Fellowship of the Ring before, uh, Two Towers was, well, before Two Towers was in theaters. Right. And Mom and Dad actually went to see Two Towers in theaters, didn't they? Yes. Yes, and that that's why I remember this. Yeah. Um, but that was they were still pre watching uh Yeah, yeah. Everything we saw at that point. Um it, and we did see the movies before we read the books. Yes. Yeah. Which is funny because that if I'm remembering right, I don't I think that almost didn't happen. Oh? 
like because I know mom enjoyed the books or at least the Hobbit mm-hmm. when she was a kid, and it was something that she'd considered having us read, but we but never got around to. Or maybe it was dad who really liked the Hobbit when he was. I don't remember, but it was almost it was almost a book that they had us read, and then for whatever reason didn't end up happening, and then the movies came out. And then dad wasn't a big fan of the the Lord of the Rings books, if I'm not mistaken. Like he thought they were too dark. You don't know that does sound familiar. But then the movies came out, and they ended up seeing them and decided that maybe it wasn't so bad. Yeah. The books are actually really heavy. Yeah, they are. Um, but yeah, uh, we we did end up reading the books. Mm-hmm. I specifically remember that um, we were not allowed to read farther in the books than we were in the movies. Right. Because, Which... yeah, because book two, not book two, Two Towers, the book. Mm-hmm. Two Towers goes a little bit farther than the movie does. So we actually didn't get to finish reading the Two Towers until the Return of the King movie came out. Right. Which we did get to see in theaters, and it was glorious. Oh, it was amazing. I was obsessed with those soundtracks for the longest time. (laughs) I was just obsessed with that world for the longest time, Oh, yeah. Yeah, you and me both. Because... Like, we saw the movies, and then we got to read the books, and then there was a point at which I was like, I want to reread these, but I don't know, for some reason I decided I was going to read them out loud to you. Yeah. And the two towers took forever to get through, because I actually, like, did a voice for Treebeard and, like, drew out all of the all of the words, so that took forever <laughs> to get through. Yep. Because uh, his chapters are so long. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. That was... And then we did the same thing with Silmarillion, too, I believe. Did I read that one out loud? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Silmarillion is, is a good one. Um, it can get a little dry sometimes, and it's really dense. Mm-hmm. It's really dense. Yeah. yeah, and it's constantly referencing other works that most of which hadn't actually been uh, published yet at the time. Mm. Are you talking about the, the new like supplementary stuff that's been coming out? Yes. Um. A lot of that is they're basically expanding on his notes. Mm. Um, and I think they just released the very last one. I think okay. I think Beren and Luthien was the last one they were going to do. Okay. That makes sense. It's a good... Yeah, because there there, he had so many notes. Like, the Silmarillion itself wasn't even really a full, completed piece um, yeah. when he passed away. Right. Yeah, because there was... So the unfinished histories that were basically a prototype of that that mm. were released. But yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the Silmarillion was the project that he had been working on when he was approached by the publishers about writing a sequel to The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he decided to use the Lord of the Rings trilogy to kind of tie The Hobbit in with this other world that he had been in the process of developing. Mm. A lot of work went into that too. A lot of work. Because just the Lord of the Rings trilogy alone right. took him like 12 years to write. Yeah. That's a long time to be writing on writing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, there there was a lot of it that actually went through a lot of rewriting. Mm. Like you get, um, what is it called? It's like the Unfinished Tales or something like that. Oh, yeah. Which is actually like a compilation of like notes and letters and scrapped scenes and, and original 
um, writings and stuff that had were later rewritten and all that. Mm-hmm. Because I actually, um, I think I had read one of them, or some of one of them, and it was like there were all of these scenes of Frodo and Sam like near Minas Morgul or like in Mordor and stuff like that, like scenes that were eventually drastically changed or just never made it into the book. Yeah. How many of the um, supplementary books that have been coming out have you actually read? I've actually not gotten my hands on any of them yet. Hmm. I'm kind of sad because I want to read them. I do. I believe Mom has a copy of Children of Huron. I think she does. I'll have to, I'll have to dig for that one. I got really lucky. Um, our library actually had Children of Huron um, on audiobook, and it was actually narrated by Christopher Lee. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. It was. That's so, really cool. Oh my gosh. <sighs> it was amazing. So if you can get a hold of the audiobook, oh yeah, I would highly recommend that one. Maybe I'll grab one of those uh, Audible introduction, like the trial offers. Yeah, yeah, that that thing. I had a I had a trial for um, Amazon Prime recently, mm-hmm. and when I went to cancel it, they were like, "Oh, you haven't used any of your Prime benefits," and it was like, "You get a ninety day." trial for audible which you know includes three free audiobooks i was like oh hey okay that's fun let me go ahead and sign up for that before i cancel my account yeah so i'm thinking about using one for maybe the silmarillion because my library doesn't actually have that on audio oh Hmm. they had the hobbit and then they had the the trilogy and they had children of Huron, but they did not have the silmarillion Mm -hmm. That or I might get Brennan Luthien. Can I, I? I actually just bought that, like the right. the the book. Yeah. Um, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But I already know I'm gonna like it because Brennan Luthien is actually my favorite story of his. Hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, a man with the uh, background of Tolkien to not have that kind of. Uh, Tristan and Isolde, mm-hmm. Romeo, Juliet, Lancelot, Guinevere type romance would just be absurd. Right, right. Although, I have to say, I think my favorite part of that whole story is the fact that uh, Luthien is not just a damsel in distress. Oh, no. She is just as proactive in fighting against... Was it Morgoth they were fighting? Morgoth. Or was it actually Sauron? Okay. Yeah, it was Morgoth. Sauron wasn't really in the picture to any great extent at that point. Okay. There were one or two stories that had Sauron back when he was a servant of Morgoth, weren't there? Mm-hmm. A lot of the a lot of the Silmarillion deals with Morgoth. Right. Yeah. I just for some reason, and I'm probably remembering it wrong, but for some reason I just feel like I don't know, maybe I maybe I thought that that Sauron showed up at one point. He in does that story. Okay. I, well, I don't know if Good. it's in that story, but he does show up quite a lot in Silmarillion yeah. because he was working for Morgoth. Like he was the one mm-hmm. that went. He was he was the diplomat, really. Um, mm. He would go out among like the crafters of the elves and stuff like that and try to learn their secrets. And yeah. he was really instrumental at that time in like swaying people to turn over to Morgoth. Right. Yeah. He was. He was the uh, the recruiter. He was the the fair devil, really. Mm, yeah. 
but yeah, I, it, it's <laughs> it's kind of funny because um, like Jax and I, we we you know hop around different free MMOs every once in a while just to see if they're any right. good. Um, but uh, really early on when we first met, um, I had been playing uh, Lord of the Rings Online at the time, and I somehow convinced him to actually like get on and and play on the same server as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, because we, we weren't really living terribly close at the time. Yeah. And we didn't always have the time or the money to, like, actually get together. So we did some, like, long-distance dating yeah. in the game. <laughs> one of our One of our earliest dates, we actually went to the Winter Festival. That's really cute. It was. It was a lot of fun. Because we, we went around and we were, um, like you know, playing all the different festival games and stuff like that. And then we just ended up like laying out in a snowbank, looking up at the sky and just talking. Hmm. So I have, I have really good, um, I have really good memories of that game. And we still do play every once in a while. Um, we've been, oh, what was it last year? I think for like Cyber Monday, they were having a huge sale on a whole bunch of their expansion stuff. So yeah. we picked up a whole bunch of um, X-Packs for the game. So we've been trying to kind of, you know, make some time every once in a while to go in and play. And there's so much lore that they've stuffed into mm-hmm. this game because the game is actually based on the books and not on the movies. Right. And Jax is really only familiar with the movies and not anywhere near as familiar with them as I am. Right. We we were We were a special kind of obsessed. <laughs> I still am. I still am, mm-hmm. really, to be honest with you. But, it, it, like, I keep, like, finding, like, coming across stuff in the game and, like, getting really excited about it. And he's like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then I have to sit there and explain it to him. <laughs> but, yeah, it's 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 been fun kind of introducing him to that world and explaining some of the lore and stuff to him. Yeah. I have to get him to read the books sometime. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want to do a comparison between the books and the movies at some point as well. Right. Yeah. I definitely think that's going to be one of our more positive comparisons. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because the adaptation was so good. It was. It was... It didn't have everything, but it had enough. There were very, very few lines in those movies that did not come from the books in some capacity. Mm. And that's... That is always always a good thing sometimes they had to move them around a little bit put them in different places or give them to different people but right and and you know obviously we'll get into this more when we start doing our uh source versus film Mm -hmm. but movies and books have very different narrative requirements yes um even like Movies and TV shows have very different narrative requirements. Mm-hmm. And when you move between mediums, things have to change to fit the medium. Exactly. So while a book can meander and have a bunch of different like side plots happen that don't really advance the main plot, you can't always do that with movies. Right. You also have, um, you have a very limited space of time to convey things. Like it's got to be yes. concise. Yes. A book can meander and wander around a lot. It's maybe not always 
recommended. Oh no, you, it's it it that can definitely be a flaw in books as well. I but still I think you've got have the hardest time getting through the Anduin section of the first book. Ah, uh, yes. It drags so much. Windy is the river itself. Yes, it's like let's spend like four pages talking about the landscape. Okay, they've traveled for a day. Now we get to spend like four pages talking about the new landscape. If there was one thing Tolkien was good at, it was writing about landscape. Oh yeah. Oh definitely. Oh he can write about landscape. And a million fantasy writers afterwards thought that writing landscape was the way to go. Yeah. I have a coworker actually, she just picked up uh she recently picked up this fantasy book she was uh she was listening to the audiobook and she said she had to put it down because it was like I don't need to know about every single blade of grass that they passed on their way there. Like, just get to the point. Yikes. No, I, w I would read those books more often than I do, but unfortunately, like I said, I have a really hard time getting past the Anduin. Hmm. I think I've still only really read them like four times all the way through. That's not bad. That's more than I've ever reread anything. <laughs> the Hobbit, I think I've only read a couple of times. Hmm. That one I think I might have read twice. Because I think I read it again before the movies came out. Mm. Now, you want to talk about Concise. That's a short yeah. book, but they sure it packed is. a lot in there. Yeah. Which is why, initially, I think I was okay with them splitting it into, you know, maybe two movies. Because, mm -hmm. again, you know, narrative differences. Right. There's, there's, there is a lot that goes on in The Hobbit. I have mixed feelings about The Hobbit movies. I do, too. Um, I've only I've only seen each one of them once, unfortunately. We were going to buy them when the second one came out, I think. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, well, we'll wait until they're all out and then we'll just buy like a box set. And then from there it was, well, we know they're going to do an extended edition. So we'll yeah. just wait until those all come out. So we just never picked them up. Yeah. I've not actually seen the extended versions. Me neither. And it's like, on the one hand, I really like that they incorporated a lot of the Silmarillion stuff. Mm -hmm. That was stuff that was going on, you know, alongside, like, the White Council. Right. That was, I actually really wanted them to include the White Council. I was really excited when I found out that that's what they were doing. Yeah. I think the barrel scene, like, that whole sequence could have been shorter. Mm. Yeah. And to be fair, Tolkien had the exact same problem. But I don't think they really knew what to do with a cast of core cast of 14. Yeah, that's yeah, that's tough cuz in the book like they were all like they all had their names and everything, but they weren't really individualized very well. Right. And I I applaud the there was an attempt. There was an there attempt. There was an attempt. And they did a pretty fair job. But just You've got 14 characters. What do you do with that many people? You split it into like, four movies. <laughs> like, yeah, it was... That's Yeah, that's probably why The Fellowship was only nine people. <laughs> Tolkien was like, I'm not doing that again. No. And then he, like, he, he splits them up later, so they each get, like, there's groups yeah. of them that each get their own, like, storylines. Yeah. And in the case with The Hobbit, you've got to get at least a couple of them. You've got to make them relatable, and you have to make it matter when they 
when they die. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard when Tolkien himself boiled each character down to basically a gimmick if they were lucky. If they were lucky. Bomber was fat. Yeah. That was his character. That's Yeah, and that's really problematic, honestly. Mm-hmm. Maybe not quite so much back in Tolkien's day. Right, and like the idea, you know, you've got this, you know, fat dwarf likes to eat. Like it's in the context of, you know, like a fairy tale type story that he was trying to write. It does make sense, but it's, ah, mm-hmm. uh, it's not, maybe not the best way of handling it. Yeah, it was maybe one of those details that they probably didn't need to magnify quite so much in the movies. Yeah. I was I was a fan of the character of Balin. Yeah. Well, that he, besides Thorin, he probably had the biggest part in the book. Okay. So that was that was why it was intentional that that was the the dwarf that they Yeah. they find in Moria. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, cuz uh Balin and then Feely and Keely were the ones that that Bilbo had the most interaction with in the book. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Okay. Besides Thorin being, like, the leader of the company. Yeah. But no, I think the strongest thing that the Hobbit movies did was giving us... They, I think they did a very good job with the character of Balin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was amazing. It, it, it added an, a needed context to the Moria scene in The Fellowship of the Ring mm-hmm. that really makes that scene stronger. Yeah. Because he is a very likable character in the Hobbit movies. He was probably my favorite character in the Hobbit movies. And yeah, if you watch like if you watch them all in order, like you watch all the Hobbit movies and then watch The Fellowship of the Ring, it hits a, it has a lot more emotional impact. Mm-hmm. Because you knew this character. Yeah, and and now you're finding out after the fact that he basically died off screen and it's sad. Yeah. Um I haven't I haven't done the back-to-back, but I have watched Fellowship since I saw the Hobbit trilogy, and it does. That scene is a whole lot stronger now, because instead of watching Gimli have this emotional reaction to seeing the tomb, you're empathize- you're you are experiencing that moment with Gimli. And you can also really kind of understand his reaction a lot better as well, because mm. you see that the dwarves do have this really close, like, family... Yes. dynamic because they were they were related yes like all of them all all four like all 13 of them were related mm-hmm. to thor and that's why that's yes. why they were there yep. and gloin was gimli's father and he right. was on the expedition mm-hmm. which i i like that move from tolkien when he was writing fellowship of the ring that he's got this dwarf character making him a direct descendant of one of the main characters from The Hobbit. Right. Uh, actually, he did that with Legolas, too. Yes, he did. Because Legolas is the son of the elven king that had kidnapped them. Yes. Which is why I'm not... I don't hate the inclusion of Legolas in The Hobbit movies. I may be a little biased. I may be a little biased. <laughs> it does make sense, though. Because... I'm sure if Tolkien had written them in that order, Legolas would have been there. Oh yeah, absolutely. He may not have. I. I, I he may think, not have had any lines, but he would have at least got a mention. Yeah, uh, I think he 
was overused mm -hmm. in the Hobbit movies. The bit where he's like climbing up the waterfall, like the crumbling frozen waterfall, was a little bit much. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, well, it's Legolas. He he yeah. he uses shields as like a, a skateboard. Yeah. So you know. And he surfs yeah. down Oliphant's trunks. Yeah. I I know I don't remember if it was you, but I know there was somebody I had talked to really felt like they overused him surfing down things in the movies. I don't know if or I did say that. that. I'm not sure if it was. It me. might not have been. Somebody somebody had pointed out like there was just too much of that in that first movie that he shows up in. It was the second one, right? Uh <laughs> Uh it's been a while. Yeah, it has. Um but which which that's that's a valid point. Um I think if he does it more than once a movie it's overkill. Yeah. Um Hey, we heard you like seeing Legolas surf down things. But his first appearance where he does that with a spider down a tree trunk, I think that's a really cool callback. Mm -hmm. Or call forward. Yeah. Um like that that I don't have a problem with. I don't remember the other instances, but somebody somebody had a problem with it. I don't remember who it was. I'm sure he does a lot of it probably in the barrel sequence. Yeah, I think he does it. No, yeah, he does. He does it with like orc body or goblin bodies or whatever, whichever it is. Like that I felt was entirely unnecessary, to be honest with you. There did not need that, to be like the barrel whole sequence sequence was unnecessary. The barrel sequence does not need to be an action sequence. There packed right. in barrels and i think that was that was a flaw of those movies in general is there were too many unnecessary action sequences because they've got 14 characters and they don't know what to do with them no i did appreciate the action like the escaping from the goblin tunnels as an action yes. sequence that was a lot of fun and it that, was great getting yes. to see how well they all work together because yes, they're used because... to fighting this way and the best parts of the movies was when they used the four or the thirteen dwarves as a single character in certain instances. Yeah, when the party was a character, and those scenes, I think they did really well. Um, aside from a very specific subplot that was unnecessary and detracted from the film, Feely and Keeley were very interesting characters in there the way they characterized them. Yeah, I felt like that that whole thing was kind of shoehorned in. Yes, and completely contrary to the request of the actress involved. And that oh, really? makes yes, her her condition for coming in as an original character mm -hmm. was no love interest, no romance. She did not want to be like they needed to add in a female character. Yeah. I get that. And I, I do appreciate that she was a very strong character and she was like in on the action and all of that because you didn't really get a lot of that in the trilogy except for like Eowyn. Yeah. And Arwen's expanded role in yeah. in the movies. So I do appreciate what they were trying to do, but I feel like they kind of threw a lot of that out the window yeah. as soon as they, they made her a, a romantic interest. For a... For a dwarf. Stupid... A stupid, awkward triangle yeah. that included a dwarf. It was unnecessary. It was stupid. Like, and... you're adding unnecessary tension to an already tense situation. Yeah. 
And Evangeline Lilly is a much better actress than to be a shoehorned love triangle interest. Yeah. And she was pissed, rightfully so. I'm sure, yeah. Because she did stipulate when she signed us, she did not want to be involved in a romantic. She didn't want to be involved in a romantic subplot. Was it something that she just, she wasn't able to get any leeway on? Or was it something she didn't know about until after they finished with editing and everything? Um, I think it was just something that once it got written in, she couldn't do anything about, from what I understand. That sucks. Because I my my understanding was that there was a lot of frustration while she was filming yeah. when they got to those scenes. Yeah. I, I can imagine. Well, while we're on the subject of talking about the Hobbit movies, um, what, did, what was your opinion of Smog just in general? Ooh. I, he looked good, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's what a, they're amazing. Right. <laughs> Everything they do is, is, I feel like the chase scene that happened mm-hmm. kind of undermined the character a little bit. Yeah. Are you talking about yeah. like when he's chasing the dwarves through the. Yeah. Through the, the, the mountain. I actually kind of liked that sequence, just for yeah. like the spectacle and the fact that we got to see so much more of this abandoned dwarven city. Yeah. I felt that some of the actual like actions and animations that went with his initial speech when he's talking to Bilbo were a little unnecessary. I felt like they were mm. showing off a little. And like props to Benedict Cumberbatch for doing all of the mocap for that. Don't get me wrong. Well, but it was a little see, ridiculous. See, here's the thing: they didn't ask him to do that. So that he was all him. That was improv. That okay. was that was that was it. Was all him. Okay. It was his decision. It was he. He insisted, and they let him do it. Well, I felt that it was a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> and I get that you know he's going through this whole big long monologue, and it can get boring. Right. Yeah. But I, I'm I feel like they could have found a better way to fill the time. Yeah, even like giving us more of the room. Yeah. Show us the treasure, show us the room. And again, it's been a very, very long time since I've seen these movies. This is just what yeah. I, the the impressions that I'm remembering. Yeah. In addition, I liked that I think a lot of people didn't was the um having an orc villain yeah like a definable villain that could carry on through the through the series um and making it because it was the it was the ward captain wasn't it yeah yeah that made that that actually made a lot of sense because it gave him a motivation for chasing them down yes and it it added an another level of of drama to the battle of the five armies Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, I really enjoyed their their depiction of. Mm, yes, yes. It got it got very little actual um, descriptive time in the book. Right. So it was good. It was nice to see it, and that it was executed in a way that that did justice to the event. Yeah. Um, something the animated film did poorly. Well, the animated film was was going based off of the, no, the right. book which in the book bilbo kind of stays out of the way as much as possible and then gets hit in the head 
Yeah. And he's out for like the whole thing. Yeah. No, like, like I, I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize the, <laughs> the animated film was a very good adaptation. Surprisingly. Um, so yeah. Oh, it was Rankin Bass. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Rank, Rankin Bass did some, did some good work back in the day. But it was definitely, it was nice to actually get to see the battle. Yeah. Depicted. Yeah in a way that um, did it justice, yeah. Not only that, but because it wasn't, like, the, the movies were not being told specifically from Bilbo's perspective, like the book, we got to see a lot more of the different armies kind of um, preparing. Yes. And the little, like, alliances and stuff being formed, and yep. all this other, like, background stuff that wasn't in the book, but makes sense to be in the movie. Right. Like the uh, the White Council, exactly. Again, from the minute they announced the Hobbit, that was that was my one. I wanted them to include the White Council. Yeah. Let us see a less villainous Saruman. Yeah, and again, being told not strictly from Bilbo's perspective allows them to explore. Well, what is Gandalf actually up to? Right. While they're you know while he's not with the party. Because there were some fun bits of the early part of Fellowship of the Ring where we get to see Gandalf off doing his thing, and mm -hmm. and and it's nice to get to see that again. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, the movies always did a really good job of showing us what Gandalf is up to most of the time. Yep. Which I think does a lot to humanize him as a character. Yes, because even in The Lord of the Rings, we see a lot of Gandalf running around without really much of an explanation till after the fact where he's like so here's what i've been up to and yeah and all of my plans are coming together and and such yeah i think that was really really well handled in the movie and mm -hmm. I, I i specifically remember my very first impression of that getting to see him not know what's going on like have a suspicion and say hey i think this is what's going on but i should probably check with my superior mm -hmm. and there was something about that that really grounded the character for me for some reason yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to be honest with you, though. When I first saw the last Hobbit movie, I had completely forgotten who died at the end of the oh, book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was a little rough. Yeah, I did, too. There was, there were a couple that I remembered. Mm -hmm. The big three, I remembered. Right. But uh, beyond that, I couldn't remember. Yeah, yeah. So, oof. It was kind of nice, though, because it's like, when it, you know, when, when every time it happened, it was like, oh, I forgot that that happened. Oh, now I'm really sad. Yeah. So it had yeah. a really, really big emotional impact for me. Yeah. No, that was... And again, we're talking about 14 main characters, so the fate of everyone's going to slip through the cracks a little yeah. bit. But... Yeah, yeah. <sighs> um, here's a question, though. Okay. In the book, I don't know if you remember, but in the book, was the Arkenstone actually, like, cursed in any way? Because I feel like that's the implication that they were trying to make in the movie. Well. Like, I know dwarves kind of in general have, like, the curse of greed upon them in the first place. Yeah. But I had assumed it was kind of a racial thing rather than tied to this artifact that they keep around <clears throat> and i don't know like i said i don't know if there was some sort of implication made in the book or any of the supplementary material that they picked up on that i just didn't 
or well, if they were trying for like a, a call back or a call forward, like you said, to the ring, like they felt like they needed some objective power that has control over people's minds. Let me follow this up with another question. Uh-huh. Was the Arkenstone a Silmaril? Um, I don't think so. Because they gave it heavy Silmaril vibes in the movie. They they really did. Um, because that that which may have been the implication they were going with was see. that maybe this was a Silmaril or a very similar type of artifact. Right. Um, uh, one of them ended up with Aaron Arendil. Yeah, Arendil. Yes. Arendil. The star. Yeah. And crap, I'm gonna have to look this up. Sorry, give me just a second. Like, whether or not it was originally in the books, I think the movies heavily implied that it probably was for people who are familiar with the uh, Silmarils. Because they they kind of had a corrupting influence, too, to a, to a point, didn't they? Um, I don't know that I could say that necessarily. They were very, very powerful objects. Right. Morgoth definitely coveted them. And I suppose just the covetous nature of dwarves would make it, like, have an effect on them, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm looking it up right now. Hold on. Morgoth had the other two. Um, Fianor's two sons stole them. Hmm. It says the jewels burned their hands in refusal of their rights of possession. Hmm. They did have more or less minds of their own. Okay. Um... See, Maethros threw himself and his Silmaril into a fiery pit, and Meglor cast his into the sea. So, one is in the depths of the earth, one is in the depths of the sea, and the other is in the depths of the sky. So, I don't think the Arkenstone is actually a Silmaril. Okay. I, I find it highly, highly unlikely that that is the case. Right. And if it is, then they would need to have rights to it, or else they would not be able to, to possess it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it was... It was just, like I said, the, the movie definitely gave it kind of a similar vibe. Yeah, no, uh, I, I definitely got that. And it's it's entirely possible that the stone itself wasn't cursed, that it was just a specific predisposition that that family had. Right. That the, Ar that the Arkenstone just kind of um, set off, right. as it were. I guess I, I wish that they had made that more obvious. Mm -hmm. As opposed to making it seem like the stone makes people go crazy, right? Kind of like a kind of like a a Death Note issue, like with the the early yeah. scripts for the 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 live action Death Note movie mm -hmm. made made it so like the Death Note was some sort of a corrupting force, right? That possessed people, right? Which kind of eliminates the whole narrative of. Oh, power yeah. corrupting people. Yeah. I prefer to see corruption portrayed as... What's the word I want to use? Voluntary? Mm, yeah. As opposed um, to forced. Yeah. If that makes any sense. No, yeah, it does. That, that, that it's, it's a choice that someone makes. Because mm -hmm. I feel like always portraying it as being forced on them or being out of their control kind right. of helps to perpetrate this idea of black and white good and evil yeah and the dehumanizing of people who do bad things right 
There's also, you know, a lot of issues there with, like, taking responsibility for things that you do. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, that, that whole... That that whole portrayal and that narrative kind of upsets me a little bit, but it's yeah. it's like they kind of like walk the line with it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It, it's just with audiences these days, it kind of stuff like that kind of needs to be made more obvious. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. Um, something I think they did a pretty good job with, um, on Boromir actually. Uh huh. Um, I mean, obviously the ring is kind of corrupting, but there's, I mean, he, he, he does, he does take responsibility for it. He doesn't blame the ring mm-hmm. for corrupting. Right. Him. He blames himself for not being strong enough to resist it. Right. Which is the important defining factor, I think. And there's a really nice moment, um, when he's trying to take the ring towards the end of fellowship. Mm hmm. And Frodo gets away, and as soon as Frodo's gone... Yeah, he, like, he trips and falls on his face, and it, like, smacks him back to reality. Yeah, and he suddenly realizes what's been going on. Mm-hmm. And what he's done, and that, that he was in the wrong. But he's not yelling, oh, wait, come back, no, that wasn't me. No, he is. he's apologizing. Yeah, he's begging for, for forgiveness. Yeah, and... His guilt eventually leads him to his death. In a very noble manner, though. No, no, absolutely. But I don't, I do think that him defending Marion Pippin, or at least attempting to, was for him a, uh, oh, I had the word a minute ago. Ah. <laughs> uh, I had the word before I started the sentence, and then I forgot it. Um, it was restitution, I guess. Like a, yeah. uh, that's not the right word, but it's it's one it's, of those. R it's words. not, and I'm having I'm having the same problem you are because I can't I can't quite pin it down. Redemption is too strong of a word. Yeah. Um, restitution, I think, is too strong of a word too. Yeah. Um, repentance. No. It's close. That's close. It's close. It's close. We're almost there. <laughs> um, atonement. Atonement. It wasn't an R word. No, it wasn't. But no, that was yeah. It was it was kind of an act of atonement for him. Yeah. That he drove Frodo off and made this grave mistake. But if he can save Merry and Pippin, maybe it'll be okay. Remorse. Yeah. Is that what you're looking for? I think that's I think that's the word I had in mind. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Remorse is a good word, too. I think they both apply. Remorse and atonement. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. He definitely did redeem himself at the end, though. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. I think Boromir is absolutely one of the most fascinating characters in the entire series. Well, we know so little about him. This is true. Actually, most of what we know of him prior to joining the Fellowship, we learned through Faramir. Yeah. Definitely an underexplored character, but I mean, like, he died mm-hmm. at the end of the first yeah. book, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Ah, uh, you know, I think he would have made a good steward. Yeah, he would have. He definitely had a better head on his shoulders than his father did. Absolutely. He was very idealistic. Mm-hmm. Denethor was largely corrupted by the position. Boromir, like, every time he talked about Gondor... 
and the the glory of of his country he had so much reverence in his tone for the king that was supposed to have been returning right and i think uh, it's so sad because his death was really well in the movies i know it was different in the books but in the movies his death was a catalyst for aragorn pursuing his right to kingship let me let me actually talk about that for a, a little bit um because i feel like aragorn's character in the books is really boring yeah i can yeah like that's that's one change that i actually do appreciate from the movies is that they gave a lot more depth to his character mm-hmm. giving him that conflicted reluctant um ascent mm-hmm that he doesn't really want the power because he knows how power corrupts. He does not trust his own people yeah. until he sees Boromir's sacrifice and the fact that... Uh, that even though he did fall, he was able to turn himself around at the end. It wasn't, right. it wasn't the end for him. That yes, uh, men have a capacity for evil and terrible things, but they also have the capacity to be good and heroic and and honorable and not only to be good and heroic and honorable but to also return to that after the fact i think that yes. was really really important yes the idea that redemption is within the realm of the human experience yeah because he was he was at that point really operating on this whole idea of Everything that I have done, every turn that I have led this party on has resulted in failure. Mm-hmm. Like, that's actually a line of his in the book. When yeah. he... Because he doesn't actually find Frodo at the top of the mountain. He follows him up there. Frodo's already gone by the time he gets there. And so right. then he he follows... Like, he tracks him back down the mountain and then finds... Uh, I think Mary and Pippin's footprints going off in another direction. Mm-hmm. And he stops and he's like, every single decision that I have made in the past several months has been completely wrong. And I know I'm about to screw it up again. And ultimately he decides to go after Mary and Pippin instead. Right. Like that is the the pivotal moment. He's like, I can either catch Frodo because I know where he's going, or I can try and head off Mary and Pippin because it looks like they're heading towards trouble. Yeah. But yeah, and so him realizing that this this quintessential Gondorian, because that Boromir was oh, a yeah. representative of of Gondor in every every possible way. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he could have that hope at the end was I think necessary for aragorn's journey yeah and it's sad that he had to die for that to happen because i think he would have been he absolutely would have been aragorn's greatest supporter in gondor oh definitely but i think i think there's actually two um really important messages there specifically for aragorn as a character um the first one is that Yes, humankind is is prone to mistakes, but they are also they also have the capacity for redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other one was that, despite our greatest um, efforts, 
there's only so much that we can do. Right. Because imagine if Boromir had gone through all of that and fought off the entire, like that mm. entire squadron of, of Urukai and came out the other side alive. Oh yeah, it would have been a superhuman effort of of Herculean proportions. Right. But a feat like that, especially like particularly for Boromir, but also especially for Aragorn, becomes kind of like a uh, an arrogance of sorts. Yeah. Like, oh, we're men, we can do anything. Yeah. So I, I do feel like Boromir's death was kind of necessary in that capacity. But there's also the whole thing of even if you are going to die, the right thing is to stand up in defense of others. Yeah. Cause he could have he could have just let Mary and Pippin be taken. I mean the the result would have been the same. Except for the fact that Boromir would have lived if he hadn't defended them. Yeah. But that would not have been the right thing to do. Right, no, and it was important that he did try to defend them. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we can't ignore the repercussions that Boromir's death has for the character of Faramir. But of course. Which, the the vacancy left by his brother really let him step forward, and I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Um, <laughs> well, from what I understand based on the implications that we get from the movie and from the books, um, they were both leaders in the army. Yes, this is true. So he kind of already had that sort of authoritarian, not authoritarian, that's the wrong word. He already sort of had that authoritative position. Mm -hmm. um, mm, I'm not sure I'm going this either. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's... But there is a certain amount of growth that Faramir goes through because he has to – well, because now he's the next in line for the stewardship. Yeah. And that's a responsibility that I don't think he ever expected to have to deal with. I don't think it ever really sinks in for him either. This is true. Like, you, know, you never really see him get to the point where he's considering that as an option for his future. It's almost like right. he knows that he, because of the way his father treats him, he knows that he is destined to die in battle. Like, that's just it. That's the end of it for him. Yeah, you're right. So he doesn't really... He does go on to inherit the position. Right. Because he serves as, um, he serves as steward under Elisar. Right. But you're right. I don't think he ever has the oppor I don't think he ever has the opportunity to consider it because of everything going on. Yeah, at that point, they're actively at war. Yeah, and by the time Aragorn comes back, he's he's already in the Houses of Healing at that point, I believe. Yeah, because it's yeah. he he falls before the Battle of the Pelennor actually right. kicks off properly. Almost gets burned in the middle of it all. Yeah, he's out for the entire thing. Yeah, and then wakes up to fall in love with the. Uh, that's one of the sweetest things. I don't even know why, but I just, I think that is one of the sweetest things. And I'm glad that they added it back into the extended edition for Return of the King. Yes. Yeah, because I think, well, at this point, a Amor, not Amor, Faramir. <laughs> um, Faramir, I think he comes to, like, his, he suddenly realizes, I think this is the first time he realizes that he has a future. Yeah. His father is dead at this point, but the king is back, and the war's over. The king is back. Or is in the final stage. It's, yeah, yeah. Well, no, because he wasn't allowed to leave. Yeah. 
Yeah, so he's he's done with the war. He's and done. If, if, uh, if Aragorn is successful, if, if the Fellowship is successful, then he has a future. The world goes on. And if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. They're all going to die anyway. Yeah. Um, and so he's and he's suddenly free from all of this burden that he's been carrying his entire life mm-hmm. of being the the less favored son. Um, Constantly struggling to gain approval. Yeah. And then Eowyn is in this, I think, very dark and nihilistic place after. Oh, yeah. The battle. Like, as far as she's concerned, her future is over. Like, she doesn't have anything left after this. Her uncle is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, like, he's all that she has lived for all this time. Yeah. And and he's gone. So she, she really doesn't know what to do with herself at that point. In fact, that's where the dream actually came from, if I'm not mistaken, in the book. Yeah. Because I know in the movie, she she tells Aragorn, like, right at the beginning of Return of the King, after they have the celebration party, um... Mm-hmm like celebrating the victory at Helm's Deep and all of that. Like she tells him about this this dream that she had about like standing on the brink in the darkness washing over her or something to that effect. But I do believe that that is well now I'm not so sure. That might have been Faramir's dream. I don't remember. I don't remember. But it was it's... from the Houses of Healing. One of them had a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say it was still it was still Eowyn's dream. Yeah. I think you're right. Like she was, she was falling into this horrid depression, right? And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that their father figures were so incredibly different. Yeah, because they didn't loved her. Yes, and Faramir's father did not really, or if he did, he never ever showed it. Right. So while, yeah, it's probably still a sad occasion that his his father is dead. It's almost freeing in a way yeah which is really sad in its own right but no you can't yeah, really deny that's... the fact that you know denethor was really oppressive to his son but then eowyn has the exact opposite going on for her she had a very loving relationship with theoden yeah i do feel like though that faramir is a very tempering presence for her yeah and i I don't want this to sound wrong. I don't want this to come across in the wrong way. Right. But she is obsessively anti-feminine, if that makes any sense. Yes. Like, she does not want to be she's, a woman. She's a very masculine character. She's a very masculine character. She doesn't necessarily identify as male, but she does no. not want to be constrained by the the... The societal expectations of her gender. Right. Yes. To the point where, like, she goes a little nuts about it, honestly. Yeah. Which I can kind of relate to mm-hmm. in, like, my younger years. Right. Like, I I, <laughs> I kind of blame Grandma for this a little bit, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but I was very much of the mind that, you know... Anything that a guy can do, I can do just as well. Right. It's not exactly accurate, but that's a discussion for another time. But it it puts you into like this frenzy mm. where 
you're just constantly trying too hard. Right. To to do and to be and to prove. And this is getting really personal. (laughs) (laughs) It's, there's a lot of freedom that comes from finding that tempering personality. Right. That does not try to shove you into a box, but also helps you to realize that being all of that is not necessary either. Right. Yeah. The, 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 the personality and the person that helps you become comfortable where you are. Yeah. Where you don't feel like you've got to be either where you don't feel like you have to fit into a specific box or you don't necessarily feel like you have to destroy the box either. Yeah. Like you can be in the box if you want to be in the box. Nobody's putting you in the box. Right. If you don't want to be in the box, then be out of the box. Or you can be in the box. Either way is okay. And maybe sometimes you're in the box, maybe sometimes you're not in the box, and that's okay too. Yeah. That makes sense. It does. No, it makes perfect sense. Because um, I have, like, I'm a nerd. Mm-hmm. I'm a geek. I like fantasy and sci-fi. I like playing video games. I play video games a lot. I play a lot of video games. It's Oh, that's relatable. <laughs> it's one of the things that, that Jax and I relate on mm-hmm. is... Yeah, you know, video games and and watching movies and stuff like that. Like that's yeah, that's it's it's a facet of our relationship, really. Right, shared experiences and hobbies and all that. Yeah, um, but I also like I I like to cook. Um, I like to to do crafty things. I like going to antique shops, which I know is weird for somebody my age, but screw that because I like it. Like, I have a lot of traditional interests. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with that, because it's just who I am. And I think a healthy individual, regardless of who you are, you know, I I think it's healthy to have a blend of, like, finding that balance between traditionally masculine and traditionally feminine traits. Mm -hmm. I think things get very dangerous when you start rejecting certain things out of hand because of because of societal stereotypes yeah because to a point like i am just biologically wired for certain things Mm -hmm. and biologically wired against certain things Mm -hmm. like that's just that's just the way it is like that society doesn't really have anything to do with that right i kind of equate it to i don't know if you've ever read uh little women or seen the movie or anything like that I don't remember if I've read it. I saw the play. Yeah, that's right. You did see it. We only did the first half of it, though. So that's what I'm right. about to talk about really doesn't have any, like, that doesn't have any bearing on it, unfortunately. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you're familiar with the character of Joe March. Yeah. She's kind of the the main character of the story. Um, yes. And she's really the one that I relate to the most. <laughs> um, but she goes through a phase like that where she's, like, out in the world trying to assert herself and trying to find her place and try to make a place for herself really um and just kind of going a little crazy yeah but that's when she meets mr bear who is this german professor who is a lot like faramir has this very kind of quiet and subdued personality Mm -hmm. and he kind of sets her straight a little bit while also 
like allowing her the freedom to figure herself out without all of this. Yeah. Stigma is not really the right word for it, but this this striving. Yeah. And yes, Jax, I'm talking about you. <laughs> but I really relate to, to, to that personally, because those sort of mellow, like, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not explaining it very well, because they're certainly not weak. Right. Like, they're they're still very strong men. Right. But there's a sort of a quiet strength to it. Yes. Yes. They're strong in a different way than people typically consider strength. Yes. Not your typical masculinity. Yes. Absolutely. Not the uh, the Dwayne Johnsons and Arnold Schwarzeneggers. Right. Exactly. Um, or Boromir in the case of, of in the context of Lord of the Rings. Right. Right. Which is a fascinating dynamic of the two brothers. Mm -hmm. No, I, I really, really love that they were actually really close. Yes. Like they're two very different personalities, but they accepted that about each other. They were never <laughs> like at odds at any point. Yeah. Like Faramir always had this, this idea in his head that he was in competition with his brother for his father's affection, but he never blamed his brother for that. Right. He either blamed his father or he blamed himself for not being good enough. On that note, and with that juxtaposition, I don't think Boromir would have been a good fit for Eowyn at all. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I would have hated his guts. She would, No, she would have been happy for the first few years. Hmm. And I'm sure he would have been thrilled to have, you know, a warrior yeah. for a wife. But that would, have, no, that's fair. that would have worn her down after a while. Yeah. Because he seems like the, the kind of person that would have pushed her mm -hmm. to constantly be better. Yeah. And I think I think that would have burnt her out eventually. Right. But no, I love them as a couple. I think they're they're adorable. Faramir yeah. and Eowyn. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um No, yeah, probably my favorite pairing of the series. Like I said, I'm partial to Beren and Luthien myself. Honestly though, um without them, like you wouldn't have a lot of of the story. Right. Yeah. Maybe not so much with the, the rings and everything, but they are where the, the line of Elendil came from in the Numenorians. Yeah, that, yeah that's right. Because if you remember, um, Elrond had a brother. And yeah. His name is escaping right. me at the moment. Um, um, and this whole thing makes his kind of contempt for uh, Elros. Elros. That's right. That was his name. But no, it, it makes his contempt for Aragorn really kind of make sense. Yeah, and just the whole, all men in general, but specifically Numenorians and Gondor. Yeah, I feel like there's this whole faction of the elven people, particularly along the line of Luthien, who consider Beren to be this wholly unworthy piece of filth that seduced her away from her people. Probably. But then, considering that the uh, Numenorean kings were descended from Elros, if I'm not mistaken. That is exactly the case. So, Elrond probably sees the collapse of Numenor as... Justification? Or, or justified, rather. Honestly, it probably makes him a little angry that it happened. That, it would, that they got to the point where that would happen. 
yeah. the corruption and the the like that's that's fair that's fair like having descendants of of your your sibling screw up that much it's a that would be it's a infuriating to me yeah exactly it's 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 a disgrace to your brother it's a disgrace to you it's it's insulting and then to realize that you have to turn the world over to these people yeah yeah there's pro there, i mean there's definitely a lot of resentment there that that one of them wants to take your daughter away from you and i'm sure i'm sure it was very difficult for him as well when his brother chose to leave for anybody who oh, isn't yeah. for anybody who isn't aware because i realize that this might not be common knowledge um the tale of Beren and Luthien is a story of a man who fell in love with an elf maiden. Um, a lot of nonsense happened. They both died and then were, were brought back to, to live one more lifetime. Um, and Luthien specifically chose to abandon her immortality so that she could live her life with Beren and then die at the end of his lifespan <clears throat> so that they could be together for the rest of their lives. And the Valar, which are basically the equivalent of gods in Middle-earth, or I guess demigods is maybe a better term for it, um, they gave all of Luthien's descendants the option to forsake their immortality. And uh, two of her descendants were um, Elrond and Elros, who were brothers. They weren't actually her sons. They were further along down the line, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Arendil's children, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Uh, and he might have been... Oh, he's still around. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's just he's, sailing the sky. He's in a boat with a Silmaril, <laughs> being a star. <laughs> uh, somehow having the light of his star stored in a vial of water... Elf magic, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it's this um, whole thing. It's this whole it's this whole thing. <laughs> it's just it makes it makes me laugh anytime I remember, oh yeah, that star is technically Elrond's dad. So <laughs> um, <laughs> Elrond's dad indirectly fought a spider. Pretty much. Pretty much. But anyway, so Elrond chose to keep his immortality as an elf. Yes. Elros chose to forsake it and become human. And he still lived an insane amount of time. Like his lifespan was ridiculous. But that is where the race of the Numenorians came from, which were the eventual ancestors of uh, the people of Gondor, or specifically their royal line. Mm-hmm. There's this whole weird nonsense about how Aragorn and Arwen are actually technically related but yeah it's that's that's a whole separate issue okay and apparently um uh Arendil's father was a human as well really yeah turon 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 tu tuor i'm sorry okay i was going to say tuor tuor cousin of turin turambar turin turambar the son of hurin um i imagine so oh crap um, like the Turin Turinbar. The Turin Turinbar, the guy who was responsible for the fall of Gondolin. Uh, yes. Yes. Holy crap. I didn't know that. The the one who's supposed to slay Morgoth at the end of whatever. Or if I did know that, it, it's been a very long time and I actually forgot. 
Yeah, let's... Yay! Complicated family life! <laughs> didn't, didn't we do this last time? <laughs> yeah, there's... See, here I thought there were two elf-human couples in all of oh, no, Middle-earth no. history, but there's more. Yeah, there's, there are more. There are more. Luthien's line was specifically given that option by the Valar, but it it's not necessarily commonplace for all right. half elves. Right. So here's here here then is a question: Does that make Elrond only a quarter elf? Um, I guess that would technically be the case if Arendil was Brennan Lithian's son. He's half elven. Oh. Wait, Arendil wasn't. Arendil wasn't the. Um, he wasn't from the line of Bran and Luthien. It was Elwing who was from the line of uh, Bran and Luthien. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, granddaughter. Granddaughter of Bran and Luthien. And the only one of her uh, family who chose to be an elf. Gotcha. Bran and Luthien had a child, Dior, who married the elf Nimloth. They had Elwing, Elured, and. Elurin, I'm probably butchering these names, and I apologize. <laughs> Without seeing them in front of me, I can't correct you. Um, and yeah, Elwing and Arendil, and they had Elros and Elrond. Um, but Elros was the one who um, started the line of Numenor. Yes, yes, that was that was his people. Um, wait, maybe it was. I might be reading this wrong. The key is kind of like off to the side, so it's possible that <laughs> <sighs> there's like color-coded boxes. Goodness. Yeah, the key's cut off at the bottom, so I don't know. So there's like green and blue striped, which I can see that's elves. There's yellow boxes, and there's white boxes. Oh, wait, maybe the white boxes are the humans, and yeah, because Elros is in a white box. What's the yellow boxes? <laughs> but anyway. Anyway. I'm sorry. Not important. That's a um, but it, 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 long story short, Arwen is going to be given this choice to keep mm -hmm. her immortality or to become human. Right. And considering the fact that she is in love with Aragorn, who is a human, albeit with a very long lifespan because he is descended from half elves basically mm -hmm. yeah um that implies that the implication there is that she is going to forsake her immortality because the elves aren't going to stay around forever they're going to leave yes and they're they're aware of this that they're not going to be staying that they they're going back home to valinor which is where they came from in the first place right which if Arwen becomes mortal, she's not able to do. So Elrond will not only have to deal with the fact that his daughter is going to die eventually, mm -hmm. but he's going to be separated from her for eternity. Yeah. And I, like I had, I, th I think I had started to say earlier, I'm sure that there was already a lot of pain involved with his brother making that choice. Yes. Absolutely. Because his brother's already dead by this point. Right. Like, his brother oh, has been dead. dead for centuries. Elrond has been... A long, uh, yeah. Elrond's been around for, like, 5,000 years or longer. Yeah. Um, 
I don't have the exact like the timeline or anything. Um, but it looks like five thirty two of the first age was when Elf was Wow. Yeah. Never mind. It's been like seven thousand years. Uh Elros died in four forty two of the second age. So he still lived a very, very long time, like a couple oh, yeah. thousand years. Of course, we don't know when he actually made his choice. Right. But still, that's, yeah, yeah that's, that's a good, like, that's a good, like, four to five thousand years that he's been without his brother to this point. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the War of the Ring happens at the end of the Third Age. I believe it was actually a good three thousand years into the Third Age. Yeah. Um. The second um, age was roughly two and a half thousand or three thousand or so. Right. So ages ages of Middle Earth, like they're they're determined by monumental events, but right. they are usually roughly two and a half to three thousand years apiece. Which, you know, is a long time. Like a lot of the times I think we say that without really properly quantifying it. Um mm-hmm. we're 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 talking about the difference between modern day and like say ancient Greece. Yeah. And you know, this guy has lived like two or three times that long, the majority of it without his brother. That's, that's kind of nuts. Yeah. Like it's specifically mentioned at some point that Aragorn is actually like 87 years old or something like that, which is kind of crazy. It's like really, really crazy. Especially considering he's only, like, halfway through his lifespan. Right. But that is still, like, a speck to Elrond. Right. Considering how long he has been alive. Like, that's nothing to him. And the thought that that could be his daughter, like, Mm. her whole lifespan reduced to that speck. Yeah. Is, yeah, I'd be mad too. Yeah, no. Elrond makes a lot more sense when you actually look at the context of everything going on. Yeah. Oh, all of these characters make sense if you take into consideration the context of what's going on. There's a lot of context. There is a lot of context. So much context. And that's one of the things that really makes me appreciate the vast amounts of research that went into making all of these movies, is that they took all of that context into consideration. Mm. The whole beef that Elrond had with Aragorn, I don't think that was in the books. And if it was, it was nowhere near as pronounced. Yeah. But it makes sense, considering the context. So I have no problem with them putting that in there. Right. I have no idea how we got to this point. (laughs) I don't even know, man. We're just, we're talking about things as they come up. I'm pretty sure there's a couple of topics that we kind of like... Glossed over? Most... Mostly, well, I yeah, that too, but I think there's also some things that we mostly finished talking about but didn't really, like, conclude, but we jumped into something else. Jumped into something else, yeah. And all of a sudden, we're talking about the the genealogy of elves. <laughs> what is this? But you know what we haven't really talked about yet that we kind of need to before we can, like, consider wrapping this all up? What's that? We've barely talked about hobbits. We haven't talked about hobbits. We've talked about dwarves. We've talked about elves. We've talked about men. We haven't talked about hobbits. We have not talked about hobbits. Let's talk about hobbits. Let's talk about hobbits. Oh my gosh, hobbits. Hobbits are great. (sighs) Goodness. And hobbits are just as complicated if we get into genealogy. Oh, no. We're not touching 
We're not Let's touching. Let's not jump down that rabbit hole. We are going to mention that it's kind of ridiculous that of the four hobbits in the Fellowship, only one of them is not blood related. Yeah, and that's Sam. Sam's the in only one that's three not ways. blood related. <laughs> there's like, there's like two different ways at least that each of the the hobbits are related to each other, except for Sam. Yeah, and actually, there's another one if you count Freddy uh, Bulger from the books. Because he was in on the whole thing at the beginning. He stayed at Crick Hollow. Mm. I don't know if you remember this. Right. I I vaguely remember. There were four hobbits that set out from Hobbiton, but Mary was not one of them. Mary was right. at the house in Crick Hollow that Frodo was supposed to have been moving to. That's right. So that he could get away without any suspicion. And Freddy stayed behind at Crick Hollow to divert attention to, to di- divert the attention of the Black Riders specifically, so that they could That's get out. That's right. So yeah, there were five of them. And Freddy is still related to, to Frodo. <laughs> and by extension, Merry and Pippin as well. So it was, it was all, it was really, it was really a family affair between these aristocratic hobbit oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. houses. Which, which is, it's funny to think about them in those terms, because they're still hobbits. So they're still very grounded and down to earth and like people of the land. Well, no, I mean, yeah, people of the land, sure, if you want to go that route with it. But I really think that Tolkien was trying to make a statement about um, English high society. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of got into this with Jax a little bit because I was trying to explain to him what a Matham is. Um, Because Lord of the Rings Online, you can play an elf, a dwarf, a man, or a hobbit. And depending on which race you choose determines, like, where you start. And if you play man or hobbit, you technically start your tutorial section in um, near Bree. Mm-hmm. But then if you are playing a hobbit, it actually moves you to um, the Shire. And there's like, there's reputation items and stuff that you can get that will give you reputation with whatever faction is in the area. And for the Shire, it's Mathams. Okay. Which I don't know if you remember this. But Mathams are, it's basically like a catch-all term for, like, useless gifts. Ah. Specifically the ones that are given on birthdays. That's right. Because hobbits don't get presents for their birthday. They give presents. Right. That's right. I, I'd almost forgotten about that. So, yeah, it's, it's, there's... How wholesome. <laughs> it's, it's this whole thing. But I, I feel like, I really do feel like that that was a statement he was making about uh, British high society. It's entirely possible, yeah. And how pointless because they're nosy they're they're very stuck up they're no this is true i i I forget this yeah like they're always in each other's business if you do anything that is outside the norm like they ostracize you that's right yeah and they talk about it with all their friends for like years and years and years (laughs) it's like yeah they're they're there are people of the land and all that there's they're simplistic folk but they're so like posh british like it's it's ridiculous <laughs> and there's 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 poor sam who is working class who's, yes very working class is not related to the massively intermingling high class hobbit families right the tooks and the baggins and the brandy bucks and the uh i don't remember any of the other big ones the proudfoots yeah, the Proudfoots. Bulgers. Bulgers, yeah. Staddles. 
No, I'm sorry, that was the name of the town. I don't know what I'm talking about. And then there's Sam, the son of a gardener. Yep. Whose greatest aspiration in life is to marry the farmer's daughter. And have a garden of his own. Yes. Because he's he's the son of the gardener for the giant mansion that they happen to live, like, down the hill from. Yeah. Yep. He just wants his own little garden. Yep. And, uh, to, so much so that when he is in possession of the ring and the ring is trying to corrupt him, his great plan of domination with the ring of power is to turn Mordor into a garden. Yep. He's going to punish all of the orcs and till all of the land and plant all of the plants. He's he's going to make <laughs> Mordor the the biggest garden in the world and that's that is that is his plan that for is domination. That is his vast aspiration. And then he's like I don't really want a garden that big. That's that's, that's too, much. too much. That's too much. I don't need this. His ultimate justification <laughs> is I can't take care of all that on my own. No, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> really, though, I think that's... I'm like, Sam is kind of the epitome of Hobbit culture, really. Like, at its most basic. I'm not talking about, like, the high society mm -hmm. stuff. No, but, like, as as a whole. Yeah. The Shire. Yeah. Um, But I, I think that's kind of the point that Tolkien is trying to make, is that, that mm -hmm. Hobbit's in general, are more resistant to this sort of corruption because they just don't care about that all that like domination nonsense. Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't want a lot out of life. They just want quiet. And I think the took tendencies to want to break out of that comfort zone are really the weakness that allows Bilbo and Frodo to be corrupted to the degree that they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, that's a that's a lot of the problem that Pippin has with the Palantir later. Yes. Is his insatiable curiosity gets him hooked on it and then he just he can't put it down. Absolutely. And he can't stop thinking about it. Mhm. Mm but Pippin is took through and through. Like he's pure took. Right. If I'm not mistaken, he's descended from the great took. He's I think he's a direct descendant of the Great Took, if I'm not if I'm remembering right. I'm not I'm not gonna I am not gonna dig up the family tree on this one, <laughs> I promise. The great bull roarer took who was tall yep. enough to ride a pony. Oh no, a horse. He was tall enough to ride a full sized yes. horse. Was he wasn't the one who knocked a goblin's head off. Yep, and invented 200, yeah. oh, 200 yards. 200 yards into a gopher hole and and won a battle and invented the game of golf in the same in the same day. Yep. There's actually in in Lotro there's a statue of him. Does he have a club? Yep. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember which town it's in, but there's a quest in there that has you like going around and inspecting rabbit holes or something like that and there's there's a statue of the great took like in the town square. Nice. I just want to take a, a, a moment here to recommend if anybody listening is a fan of Lord of the Rings, um, the books or the movies or, or any of it, uh, at least give Lotro a try because um, it is very heavily steeped in lore and it is actually free to play. They they kind of they kind of limit you on how far you can go, but it is free to play to start off with. That's one of those you can it does it gives you enough to decide whether it's something you want to pay for. Yeah. 
yeah, it it gives you just enough to to decide whether it's something you want to actually invest money in. Mm -hmm. Um, Weathertop is gorgeous. I that's one of my favorite places so far in the game. We haven't really got much farther than that. We've actually we've been to Rivendell, um, which is also very pretty, but Weathertop is still my favorite. Yeah. I I should give it a try at some point. I would recommend it. I believe we're on the Brandywine server, if you're okay. ever curious about poking. Okay. I will say, um, if you're going to play a Hobbit, start with a Hobbit. Because after some of the quests, like the starter quests that you get with the other races, um, the quests in the Shire feel very lackluster. Yeah. It's a lot of deliver this mail without anybody nosy like interrupting you. Or deliver these pies without ed- without any hungry hobbits, like, stealing them from you. Or, I've got this piece of gossip and I need to tell my friend, like, all the way on the other side of the world. Could you go and let them know? <laughs> it's a bunch of really dumb stuff. It's very and by much... the other side of the world, the other side of the Shire, well, yeah. because... Yeah. That's as far as hobbits. they go. Eh, hobbits. That's all they care about. That's <laughs> all they need. Uh I mean, it's very much in the spirit of what hobbits are. Right. As, no, as a absolutely. people and as a culture. But it feels very... It, it has a very, very different tone. Especially after you've already done a whole bunch of other quests in other zones. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So each race kind of has its own starting zone, I'm guessing. Yeah. The uh, Elves and the Dwarves, your tutorial section is uh, Thorin's Hall. But then the elves move to the Blue Hills, and the dwarves, I think, stay there for your actual, like, starter zone. Because you have a tutorial section, and then you have an actual starting zone. They're they're separate. Right. Yeah. Which ones are the Blue Hills again? They're the ones all the way on the western side, on the other side of the Shire. Okay. The, the ones that kind of border the, um... They border yeah, the Yeah, the ones around the... Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting starting point. Yeah. If you want the full like travel experience, I would start with either a dwarf or an elf. Mm. If you want to see the most of the world. Right. Because hobbits start in the Shire, and once you're finished leveling up in that area, you move east. Gotcha. And men actually start just outside of Bree. Makes sense. You can. I, I think there's stuff you can like travel to the Shire to help level, but you don't move much farther west than that because everything right. west of there is below your level. Gotcha. Noted. I'll keep that in mind. We actually um there's there's a race they introduced with the Mordor X Pack recently, mm-hmm. which we didn't actually purchase, but we ha- we got enough um in game currency with all of the other stuff that we had bought, we were able to buy the race, which is the High Elves. Okay. Which the tutorial actually starts you at the um the Battle of the Second Age. Oh. And then moves you to Rivendell. Whoa. And then puts you back in the Blue Hills for your starter zone. Interesting. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. It actually um cuz there's this whole thing like you were actually fighting um during the the Battle of the of the Free Peoples and all of that and you were like mortally wounded. And you're in the blue, like the blue mountains, specifically because Elrond was sending you to the ships to leave. Mm-hmm. But then you go through this sequence where you're like remembering all of the people that that you knew here 
and the struggles that they're still going through, and you decide that your place is here to to finish seeing everything through. Right. And so you choose to stay in Middle Earth, and it was just it. It did so much more to ground us in the story, and to kind of make us care about these these characters that we had created much more than any of the other tutorials had for any of the other races. The storytelling was phenomenal. Nice. That's always good. That's important. I kind of I kind of wish that they would go back and redo some of the the other starting like the tutorials for the other races and stuff, but I don't think they're going to. They're still good. There's still like there's still story to it and everything. We just got more invested with this one. Hmm. But yeah. Uh it's a good game. So if any of you are interested, and if any of you play MMOs, or even if you don't and you're looking for one to pick up, we don't play too terribly often. Like I don't think I think it's been like a good month or so since we've played last. But it's not it's not subscription based, so it's not like, you know, we're spending money on something that we're not actually using. Well we should probably start wrapping this up because Jax is on his way home. Alright, so now I've gotta I've gotta do some stuff. Um Real quick, though, before we finish up here. Okay. What is your favorite race? Oh, that... That's a tough one, because all of them have things about them that are fascinating. Mm -hmm. Without going into too much um, detail, I mean, obviously you've got... Well, mm, I'm going to go with Ents, actually. Ents are awesome. That's like re- it feels really left field, but like I don't know. Mm. Ents are just cool. Yeah, yeah, they are. Talking trees. And the fact that they're responsible for like keeping an eye on all the, the other trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the implication there there's a heavy implication that the Entwives are in the Shire. Yeah, yeah, there is. Well, the Entwives were the ones that were like the Ents were over trees the entwives mm-hmm. were over like vegetation and and gardens and just the 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 general lushness i guess you could say of the of the yeah. land i mean that's what the the brown lands just outside of daggerlad that's that used to be their land and they left and everything just died right um i think there's a lot of good narrative there for um industrialization and the decline of the environment yeah no there's a lot of um well, that's what the that's what the the Battle of Ishgard was all about in the first place. Was Tolkien's yeah. views on the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, um, and well, he he would stand by the fact that he did, does not write allegories, and I actually tend to come down on his side in favor uh, in on his on his side in regards to allegory. Um, well, it's. I'll, there's a difference between straight allegory and having things in your story be a metaphor for something else. This is true. Um, but I think a lot of his life experiences really bled into the world that he created. Right. Um, and I think that there's a very severe um, just distaste for the Industrial Revolution because he served in the trenches in World I think that yeah. there's a lot to be said about, and I actually, I've always kind of wanted to just write an essay or something on the influences of, and there's probably, they're probably already out there, but World War One and how it influenced the world of 
Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah. And even, like, there are, there's things you wouldn't think about. Um, I don't remember which Lord of the Rings movie. I stumbled on some people watching it, and I was in, in the middle of it. The semester I was taking a class on World War One in college, mm-hmm. and I realized that Frodo suffers from a lot of um, uh, shell shock. Really, yeah, yeah. What what they would have called shell shock. So I I definitely think that the whole idea of this evil race that's just mass producing weapons mm-hmm. is intentional well i mean if you'd like we can add that to the list of topics (laughs) if you want to just take an episode to talk about the parallels between world war one and and the world of middle earth as it was envisioned that could be fun yeah be a lot of research so something down the road but yeah well we've got a couple of different topics on our list that are going to take some prep work as well so (laughs) yeah but no yeah that's that's that would be fun Mm -hmm. um what about you? Favorite race? Favorite race. I'm going to cheat on this a little bit. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to go with the Aerlingus. Ah. Just, I mean, everybody, not everybody, most girls went through a horse phase. Yeah, no, it's, it's. But just the, the, the relationship and the respect that they have for horses in general yeah, they're definitely something between the Vikings and the uh, the Mongols, I guess. Maybe a little bit. I don't know. Their their whole history, uh, I find to be very very interesting. I think they're a little closer to Vikings, actually, um, because well, yeah, their 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 language specifically is, if I'm not mistaken, Old English. Yes, yes, absolutely, and a lot of their their symbolism. Um, but they definitely have a very, um, is it, is it the Mongols that I'm thinking of? I'm not sure. No, the Hun. I think it's the Huns with the, the relationship with the horse. Okay. As being a very culturally central idea that, that horses were part of their culture, not just. Well, he might've drawn some inspiration from that, but Middle Earth specifically is a representation of Europe. No, no. Yeah, absolutely. So like culturally they're they're very viking and very norse Mm -hmm. but but they incorporated that idea of bringing the horse into that culture gotcha gotcha but yeah it's it's something you don't you don't see a whole lot in fantasy in general really no that's true i mean horses are pack animals they're they're a tool yes but to the the rohirrim it's like that's their their livelihood it's almost a sacred creature to some extent like it's really really damaging to them not just uh their economy and their culture but also to their pride and to their dignity that saruman actually takes any of their horses yeah because they're basically forced into surrendering black horses as a, a tax so to speak and that they find that very deeply offensive. Yeah. Particularly because I I think they know how these horses are going to be treated. Right. <sighs> but yeah, it's just it's a very unique um sort of culture. Right. 
No, yeah, absolutely. I can. I've I've always thought that that Rohan was a really cool setting. I guess. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the uh, when the Rohan expansion came out for Lotro, they actually added mounted combat? Ooh, I'm really excited. <laughs> That's not something you see. Uh uh-uh. uh Ever. <laughs> In MMOs. No. Yeah, they specifically developed and added mounted combat for Rohan. It's good. It's something you can only do in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. But it's it, it's something that's built into the system. So now whenever I mount my horse, it changes some of my skills to be specific to mounted combat. That's really neat. Yeah. I like that. Mm. But yeah, um, I guess we should probably wrap this up then. Um, All right. If any of you out there listening would like to let us know what your favorite race is and why, um, you can use the hashtag NerdscapePod on Twitter and uh, let us know. And as always, uh, you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at Captain Fenris. And I am at Ragdoll127. You can uh, reach us there if you have any questions or suggestions or if you just want to chat. That's cool, too. We're always always open to hearing how we can uh, improve the podcast, uh, any potential topics. We're always looking for more things to talk about. Yep. And I've I've got a new like recording and editing setup that I'm uh, kind of playing around with now, so any feedback on that is greatly appreciated. I think last week's episode, um, which I plan on posting tonight or tomorrow, uh, is the first one that's got like the full treatment, so mm-hmm. we'll see how that goes. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, we are. Uh, you can find our podcast on Google Play or on Apple Podcasts, I think is the preferred term for it now instead of iTunes. Uh, Either way, we're, we're, you can find us on Apple. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're also on Stitcher, if that is your preferred uh, podcast app. Other than that, if you're looking for a website where you can actually download episodes, if you're podcast app of choice is not allowing you to do so for whatever reason um we're on wushka which is w-h-o-o-s-h-k-a-a.com um we're also on podomatic for right now and on podcast.com which is kind of hit or miss on whether or not (laughs) it'll actually load but it is there um if you should choose and their downloading uh system is is pretty easy so i guess that is that about to cover everything I think so, yeah. Alrighty. Well then, I have been Rama. And I have been Fen. And this has been Nerdscape. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Far over the misty mountains cold To dungeons deep and caverns old We must break of day to find our long forgotten gold the pines were